0: Hello, welcome to The Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. And uh, we have a special show today, but I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, actually in the state of Washington. I've written some books. My latest book is in the house of Tom Bombadil, and I'm working on a commentary in the book of Acts. Enough
1: about me. How about you, Tom? I'm Tom Price. I teach theology, ethics, and philosophy. One of the places is Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary.
2: And then on to you, Glenn. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, ministry associate at Reflections Ministries, and a retired history professor. And by the way,
0: we have a live audience in Huntsville, Alabama. Glenn Sunshine is going to serve as our master of ceremony, so to speak, and take it from here. We've got a special guest, and so Glenn, why don't you introduce him, and then let's get into the subject, uh, the subject of the day, because I know our special guest has, uh, you know, a limited time frame to work with.
2: Okay, so um, we've got Max McLean on uh, today. Max is the founder of the Fellowship for Performing Arts. Uh, he's the genius behind a number of stage plays based on C.S. Lewis's work, screw Tape Letters, Great Divorce, and others. Uh, Martin Luther on Trial, a whole variety of, of things. And most recently, a film, The Most Reluctant Convert, based on a stage play, but then a uh, really interesting adaptation for film. So, Max, welcome aboard. Really Thanks, glad to have me. you. Thank you. Okay, Uh, just to start off, tell us about the Fellowship of the Performing Arts. Uh, When did you start it? Why did you start it? What's your goal with that?
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Our mission is produced. We're a New York City uh, theatrical production company that produces uh, theater, now film, uh, from a Christian worldview meant to engage a diverse audience. And by diverse, we mean intellectually diverse, religiously diverse, which are I guess, they are the only kind of diversity it's not allowed. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so that's what we do. And, and uh, the focus recently with that as a mission, and of course it would be, is we focused on, on a lot of Lewis's work. Uh, screw tape Letters of First Great Divorce, Most Reluctant Convert. Uh, and we're uh, continuing in that vein. So w- what, uh, what caught
2: your attention about Lewis? How did you uh, start getting engaged with him?
3: Right. Uh, well, I'm an adult convert to Christianity in my 20s, uh, read uh, uh, the New Testament thoroughly, uh, and actually just uh, once, uh, I guess, I had eyes to see and ears to hear, I really just was captured by it in such a huge way. Uh, and, uh, and then I was introduced to Lewis. And I think the first one that really grabbed my attention was the screw Tape Letters. And it was actually the very first letter, you might remember it, when Screwtape is kind of bragging about his past successes. And he mentions a man in the British Museum who was reading something, uh, and all of a sudden he sees 20 years' work beginning to totter. And uh, so he said, but he was, you know, and he said that uh, he was no such fool. He, he he acted instantly on the part of the man he had best under control and said, isn't it just about time for lunch? And uh, And all of a sudden got him out of the moment. And uh, Screwtape's enemy, God, says to the man, This is more important than lunch. And Screwtape responds by saying, um, Yes, yeah, far too important to tackle at the end of a morning. Why don't you come back after lunch with a fresh mind? <laughs> and so the man gets up and he uh, goes down, picks up a newspaper, gets on a bus, and that tragedy, that, that, uh, that, uh, uh huge uh, uh, catastrophe in, in uh, screwtape's mind is averted uh and uh, and screwtape uh says kind of in a in a in a whoosh sort of way he is now this man is now safely in our father's house <laughs> uh and he forgotten you know he said he the, uh, he he realized all this sort of stuff just can't possibly be true and he ends that by saying it's funny how these humans picture us as putting things into their minds our best work is done by keeping things out, <laughs> and I think that's a real, real insight. And when I read that, uh, particularly that first letter, I just knew I was—I uh, I understood spiritual warfare in a way I hadn't understood it before, in a very real, everyday way, on how every moment of life is a is a possibility to do the right thing or the wrong thing, and the the whole trajectory of your life can change instantaneously so that's how uh lewis first captured my attention right
2: yeah, and of course the the first play that uh, i'm aware of that you did was based on screw
3: tape which by the way i saw in boston was magnificent yes i we love doing screw tape it's a very very challenging play it's it's tough play uh but uh it's thankfully I, uh, one of the most popular plays i i do think that that screw tape is for an adult uh I still think Screw Tape is perhaps uh, uh, the best introduction to Lewis. First of all, it's it's incredibly biographical in the sense that he himself is the subject of the attacks. He's you know he's the model for the patient, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, and uh, you know Lewis said that it was the it was the easiest thing he ever wrote, but at least enjoyable. Yeah, that's interesting. So you know, sometimes
0: you know, acting or even or also writing, it's kind of enjoyable to write malevolent characters or evil characters because uh, they have such a, uh, I guess, easy sort of, uh, you know, t- it's it's an it's kind of an easier time per- portraying evil than good, you yeah. know, because you you know, I think I heard- well,
3: evil sort of uh, does gen- engender conflict. Right, uh, and and you you know you want to oppose it, uh, but you know I think it was Simone Weil that said something that really has struck my attention. And I got this from Malcolm Muggeridge in in a, in a lecture that I was surprised to get a hold of. He said, "Literary evil is uh, is so interesting and so fascinating, where where uh, evil in reality is so bland and yeah. ugly, mm-hmm. and uh, so there's a very interesting thing that what is what does literature do to reality?" Yeah, yeah yeah and what does what what does art do to reality right. in 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 the process of of enlightening uh, of magnifying what is being said it can do some distortion as well right mm-hmm. right those yeah. those are some great thoughts
2: yeah lewis said uh, said that he had wanted to write the other side of it a perspective of a guardian angel but he was incapable of
3: doing it he could not imagine what that looked like isn't that interesting? Yeah. He couldn't get that far. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to somebody recently, you know, that, uh, uh, Claire Booth Luce, uh, oh, the wife of Henry Luce, owner of Time Life, in the 30s, he, she had a religious experience uh, that, uh, prompted her to read screw tape letters. And then she immediately contacted Lewis and, uh, and actually, she bought the rights to, to do the film back in the 30s. The film's never been made. And, and I believe the, that there's reasons for that. Uh, but in, in a letter uh, that was discovered in, uh, in a biography of Claire Booth-Luce, the, uh, she, uh, she asked Lewis for advice on making the movie. And Lewis says, well, you know, I don't really go in for these things, but uh, if you're going to do it, I suggest the following: uh, make sure that you don't make Screw tape a comic character. Make sure all your angels are males, <laughs> 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 and make sure the uh, the uh, uh, the music that you use is discordant.
0: Mm.
3: And those were the three things that he suggested to Claire Booth Luce that's, in that's uh, yeah. moving the uh, in, in making the movie of Screw Tape, which never got made. Yeah.
2: Well, I remember walking into the theater to see Screw Tape, and the music that was playing was the Stones' "Sympathy for the Devil," <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was absolutely brilliant. But you know.
0: yeah, some of our younger um, listeners are going to be looking for that now, Glenn.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think it's so. Uh, I was gonna I was gonna say really quickly. I think I remember reading um, Lewis talking about the kind of uh, darkness that he underwent when he was creating that character and how he had to also kind of distance himself from it because it tended to to take over too easily. And I don't know if you ran across that or in your
3: studies yeah. and preparation. Yeah, I think that's right. He said it was the easiest thing I ever wrote, the least enjoyable. It was all dust and itch and scratch and all semblances of goodness and joy had to be written out. And he said it was fun at first, you know, but... It got really tedious very, very quickly. And of course, you know, when you think of it as being uh, autobiographical, it, it, then it becomes uh, a little bit of a confessional, a little bit of a purging. Uh, he was seeing a spiritual director at that time. So I think all these things coalesced. And of course, that was kind of the, the period of his great ascendancy unto the public domain in terms of... Uh, I think he had signed the contract to do the broadcast talks, but he hadn't done them yet. But he'd already started uh, writing the screw tape letters in serial form. And uh, then that was published together as a book. And I think there was eight printings in his first year. Uh, It was astonishing. Introduced him to America and, uh, you know, royalties poured in, uh, which he thought was another temptation. Uh, So it was a a time of of great... uh, Public uh, growth in terms of his notoriety. Yeah, if I remember right, he
2: dedicated it to Tolkien, and Tolkien was absolutely horrified. <laughs> yeah, he didn't like the book. He didn't, he didn't like he didn't, the book could, at all. It was yeah, almost it, as if he almost as if I'll show you. <laughs> well, well it, you know, it he you know he says in the Lord of the Rings that it's dangerous to look too closely into the workings of the enemy because they can ensnare you.
3: And he thought that this was getting really close to that. I think he was. I I mean, any reading of it is is uh, is very convicting. Very, very convicting. Uh, And and it uh, and that's why I think it's so important. You know, it's it's it, it is a devotional, but it's a kind of a reverse devotional. Yeah. Uh, because you don't really think about things in that side. Whereas The Great Divorce, on the other hand, which I think is an equally powerful piece, mm-hmm. uh, it's actually showing spiritual warfare from the, the heavenly perspective on how we resist the Holy Spirit. You know, it's mm-hmm. how we uh, just, you know, we count the cost and think the cost is too high. Yeah, speaking yeah, the of The Great God. Divorce, is actually
2: my favorite short piece by Lewis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Strong. Strong. Yeah. Yeah, I love yeah. it
0: too. You know, speaking of co- cost, um, you know, Lewis, a uh, brilliant great scholar, uh, was kept from advancing in his uh, academic career at Oxford, and I recall reading kind of a quip uh uh in which one of the people who had voted against uh his getting a chair uh said it was the re- you know, to he said the reason was screw tape. He he could not uh, you know, uh, support the man that. in his academic career who had written, script. of course, you know, in, in academe, uh, being popular outside of academia is like strike against you.
3: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. That's not what, that's not what we should be doing with our free time. Right. Um, and of course he, by that time, you know, he, uh, he was offered a chair to Cambridge and, uh, and got it, and uh, as soon as he was offered a chair to Cambridge, then Oxford offered him a chair to stay. <laughs> but he'd already made he'd already made uh, his commitment to Cambridge, and right. stuck with it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So
2: mo- moving to uh, the most reluctant convert um, for people who haven't read "Surprised by Joy" or um, uh, or seen the film or, or the play. Where does the title come from? How, how, where, how did
3: that come about? Yeah, yeah. Well, The Spice the by Joy is an origin story about how a man who uh, was a vigorous debunker of Christianity, uh, really hated it, did not want it to be true, uh, went from that to becoming, as he said, the most reluctant convert in all England. Uh, most dejected, reluctant convert in all England. That's, that's the arc of the story. And, uh, and it took uh, many, many years. It started with the death of his mother at age nine. Uh, she was the rock that held the family together. Uh, he had a terrible relationship with his father, who, and the relationship got worse when his mother died. Uh, he experienced the, the butchery of trench warfare in World War I came to the conclusion either there's no God behind the universe, a God indifferent to good and evil, or worse, an evil God. And that was the starting point of his intellectual journey to Christianity, which took 10 to 12 years. And, you know, to cut it short, uh, it would be, you know, what turned him around? Well, certainly uh, the relationship he had with key friends such as uh, Tolkien and Barfield, Owen Barfield, J.R. Tolkien, Hugo Dyson and and others. Uh, And probably at the core of it was that his uh, argument against God was that the universe was so cruel and unjust. But where had he got this notion of cruel and unjust? He calls, we call a line crooked because you have some idea of a straight line. What are you comparing the universe with when you call it cruel and unjust? Uh, You know, if the universe has no meaning, we would never know it has no meaning. So uh, that kind of, turned his head. And so he kind of made a, a slight move to, uh, what was known as idealism, but he thought, well, that, you know, that's a good place to be because that God won't do anything to you. It won't come down here and make a nuisance of itself. <laughs> um, you know, which I think was kind of interesting. It was kind of a tame God, right. uh, to, to use Narnia language. Um, and, uh, but, but in, in, in time, uh, through through various uh, uh, individual instances, it, it came to the to the point where uh, he could not deny the reality of 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 the theistic God. I mean, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, which is kind of interesting that uh, his conversion was really the conversion that we sort of often think of a moral conversion or repentance. Turning around and uh, you know taking a moral inventory and saying you know I don't measure up, we usually think of that in Christian terms, Uh, but Lewis did not do that from a Christian perspective. He did it from what he called a theistic perspective, Uh, more like uh, Moses at the burning bush, you know, uh, being confronted by the consuming fire, and uh, and that was. His uh, starting point on the road to Christ, uh, but in the beginning, he said he had he had no conception of the incarnation. The God to whom he surrendered was strict; was not human. He simply couldn't understand how the life and death of someone else, whoever he was, two thousand years ago, could help him here and now. Uh, and so that uh, that actually changed with a, a very. Well-known conversation with J.R. Tolkien and Addison's Walk.
0: Now, now in the uh, opening of the of the film, there's yeah. this marvelous monologue with you, and you are giving the arguments against uh, God. Yep. Uh, and it's been a lo- it's been a while since I've read "Surprised by Joy." Is that taken from "Surprised by Joy"? Is that something? you No, that's
3: wrote? that comes from the opening chapter, "The Problem of Pain." Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. That that particular section uh, uh, comes that that we call it our prologue uh, when he he gives a very devastating critique <laughs> of uh, go- not just Christianity but the existence of a of a a good and moral God that the, you know, the, the idea that the universe is righteous and just because our experience of the universe is not righteous and just. I thought that that
2: was a brilliant way to begin it
3: because you start with the
2: strongest argument right away against it, mm-hmm. and then you just sort of show the slow transformation, how this really doesn't hold up. I thought that was yeah. really well done. I, I, I loved the writing on, you know, just in terms of the structure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it,
3: I, I think it's a... It, it, you know it certainly separates the sheeps and the wolves in terms of okay I'm into this or I'm not <laughs> you know uh, but I think a lot of people that know Lewis they want to hear his words you know and right. uh, they we, we we really wanted to give uh, a, a, an experience of of sitting with Lewis hearing his language hearing his syntax uh how how he articulates, I thought he he said something one of his uh, one of his uh, uh, I think it was in God in the Dock where he says that uh, you know people do enjoy a uh, a a logical stream of of thought a logical a logical arguments because I think he says the brain is meant to do that uh, but he says they one of the reasons they like it is because they don't do it very often. And, uh, and so when you can give person and, and as long as they can follow it, I think that's the key thing. If you can follow it and you're having the experience of following it, it's really, you know, it really tickles the brain, you know, when you're, when you're doing that. So, and Lewis knew that. And so that's how he structured his arguments. And so what we try to do is what the big test of the film was whether or not that would translate to film. Because, you know, film, unlike theater, theater, the imprint is the voice. And it's still it's still about the word where film has really gravitated much, much towards the image. And so words have become less and less important to the telling of the story. And uh, and of course, if you get accustomed to that when you go to the film and you you get accustomed to that, then uh, then our film is strikes one is completely different. Yeah,
2: I I like the the interaction. Well, it's not exactly the interaction. The observation of you as the older Lewis and Nicholas Ralph as the younger Lewis. Um, yes, I I thought that was a, again just a a marvelous way of doing it.
3: Thank you. Well, the the point there is, you know, Lewis is living in his memories, mm-hmm. so you know, it's it's almost in that sense like Christmas Carol, where he right. looks back on a certain portion and then. What what Norman Stone wanted to do was actually visualize me in the scene, but not seen, uh, so that uh, he can be observing, living in his living alive in his memories, uh, in the movie. Yeah, it made me think of the
2: this th- that concept made me think of the Christmas Carol too. <laughs> yes. Now, one of the things I, I want to put a uh, a. a, a a little bug in your ear about something at the end you quote quite a bit of the weight of glory have you ever considered recording that entire sermon
3: um hmm. i've done it publicly hmm. and it's a big part of uh and i'm i'm actually going to oxford next month uh for the oxbridge conference and i'm going to be reciting it there oh nice uh, I think there are recordings of it. I don't know if there, if we have the right to do it, but uh, yeah. uh, maybe we should seek them because we have rights to other things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, w- yeah. I would love to have a
2: recording of that. <laughs> and um, in all honesty, I can't imagine a better person doing it. So if if you can manage to pull that off, I would appreciate it.
3: Well, I I would I'd love to do it. And uh, I, I actually love presenting it. I really do. Mm. In fact, the new play we do, Further Up, Further In, we close with a pretty big portion of it that really, uh, I think, is profound. You know, the not only do we want to see beauty, we want to be immersed in the beauty that we see to bathe in it, to become part of it. That is why we people there in earth and water with gods and goddesses, nymphs and elves, because though we cannot, these projections can enjoy in themselves the beauty, grace, and power uh, that, uh, uh, and I can't remember the rest, but that's a big, big part of our uh, close of, of Further Up, Further
1: In.
0: Please remind me where um, Weight of Glory was originally delivered.
3: It was, in, it was at St. Mary's Church in uh, Oxford, the big church right on on the high street there. Uh, It was an even song. Uh, Supposedly, uh, it was packed to the gills. People were sitting in the window sills. Uh, I actually, in 2014, I believe, I was invited to to actually do the weight of glory in that church in the same pulpit. It's a a risen pulpit uh, and uh, very small. Uh, looking down at the congregation and uh, delivered it just the same place Lewis did. Oh, that's great.
2: So um, we're, we're getting short on time here. Um, tell us about your next projects, Further Up, Further
3: In, any future films? Yeah, we've got uh, two. Further Up, Further In is going to start uh, touring in September. Uh, I think we've got a touring schedule. We've been developing it for the last, uh, we, we did a workshop in Houston and a, a preview in Phoenix. And, and uh, uh, it really, uh, the audience response was fantastic. I was so, so pleased. So I look forward to doing that. And that's going to be uh, coming in the fall uh, around the country. And then I, we just signed a, a deal with Norman Stone to create two new C.S. Lewis films, uh one will well uh, the first film ended uh, Christmas communion 1931 uh when it really wasn't obvious that he would be you know uh, when he was converted in 1931 it wasn't obvious what kind of person he would be uh so uh you know who knew he's going to become the most influential christian writer of the 20th century uh how did that happen how did the bbc give him this platform you know to speak to the nation uh, how did uh, Hitler influence uh, the writing of screw tape letters, uh, things like that. Um, and uh, to show why he was such a, a an amazing uh, evangelist, particularly to skeptics, uh, and give some examples of, of how he did that. Uh, very excited about that. And uh, take, we also want to take a look at his relationship with Jenny Moore because that's been revealed now. Uh, he had a... Uh, Uh, he had a, uh, he collapsed and was exhausted into exhaustion. We had to be hospitalized uh, late in the 40s. So the second part would kind of look at his rise and kind of also a little bit his decline uh, till about 1950, just prior to Narnia. Then the third part will be Narnia, Joy Davidman, Grief Observed, uh, and we'll look very specifically at the last day of his life. November twenty second, 1963, well, you know, he, he died in his bed of uh, um, about uh, within an hour of when Kennedy was assassinated. And so it's kind of interesting what was going on in the world and what was going on at the kilns. We want to look at that. And then we want to look at, uh, at uh, kind of post-death. Uh, uh, there's a very interesting story about Warnie Taking all these piles of of papers and about ready to burn them, and Walter Hooper saving them from the flames <laughs> that we we want to uh, we want to try to capture. Be fun to to try to uh, cast uh, a modern day Walter Hooper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I assume you're
2: familiar with Peter Kraft between heaven and hell.
3: I am. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a fun book. Yes. Yeah, it actually launched his career. Yeah, as a published as a as a published author. Yeah, yeah. Well, I
2: I know that uh, you've got another appointment right about now, so we want to thank you so much for joining us. We're going to continue on and have some more conversation about C.S. Lewis. But uh, I want to honor your time. I appreciate your willingness to join us, and thank you very much.
3: Thank you, Glenn. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you all three of you. Thanks so very much. Yeah, great, great God to have you, Max. God thanks for
2: thanks for being thanks. with us.
3: So we just
0: had a great conversation with Max, uh, and you know I think it'd be nice to reflect a little bit on some things that he said. Maybe think a little bit about C.S. Lewis in particular, but maybe also um, the unique character of his conversion. You know, I think. Max in his uh, remarks noted that for, for most of us, you know, the thing that was the big hurdle was the moral question. You know, am I uh, able to sort of own up to my sins, uh, trust Christ uh, as my atoning sacrifice and believe that he's been raised? Um, and, and that's kind of where it is. But with Lewis, it was a much more, in, I guess you could say intellectual process. Uh, not that it was like a dry uh, sort of kind of abstract process, but um, something else was going on, and um, you know it reminded me a little bit of what I've read about Mortimer Adler's conversion. Um, there's there's this intellectual component. There are these there are these problems that have to be addressed in order for you know the conversion to occur. But the thing that's really kind of the key is not the ideas uh uh, you know on their own there is a reality that the you know the intellectual is is uh appraising and acknowledging the and that reality is god you know so it's um not so much a set of ideas in the head as it is, is there really somebody out there? <laughs> that's that's the thing. And if there really is somebody out there, then and then and, and that someone is God, <laughs> then there are certain things that follow.
2: Yeah. What what I found really interesting, and I, I we ran out of time. I wanted to bring this up with Max, is when you watch the film, and if you haven't seen it, buy it, watch it, it's worth yeah. it. Um he when Lewis gets off the train to meet his his tutor, the great knock. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, he he makes a comment about. Well, he fi- he figures he should be saying something, and he says, um, "So Surrey is is wilder than uh, than I had expected." And Knox says, "Basically, hold it. What do you mean by wilder? You know, <laughs> um, were you are you commenting on the flora, and the fauna, and the geog- the geology?" And where did you get these ideas? Did you read a book? Did you <laughs> see photos? Why would you have expectations about what Surrey would look like? You know, and, and basically, it, he sh- in, in the space of a couple of minutes, he shreds Lewis's comment so much that he dismisses it as utterly meaningless. <laughs> now, the reason why, that this time through, that stuck with me, because one of the key arguments that brought Lewis out of his atheism was where did you get this idea that the universe is unjust, that it is, that it is um, evil or anything like that? Where do you get this idea that pain is a bad thing, that evil is a bad thing? Where does this come from? It's exactly what Nock had done to him on his initial comment about Surrey right <laughs> he, he if you force him to define it where are these ideas coming from except in in the second case in the first case they were completely unfounded he was just trying to talk piffle but in the second case it becomes much more important because lewis knew he could not dismiss the evil that he saw in the world especially after world war 1
0: well think think too about you know the pedagogical approach of the great knock and how different it is from, from what teachers are encouraged to do in schools today. In schools today, if Lewis had said something like th- that, or someone like Lewis had said something like that in class, what would the teacher do? Praise the child. Yeah, affirm him, or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> for, for the marvelous insight uh, that that the child has. And and isn't it marvelous that we can affirm your brilliance? And, and NOC, the knock has no uh, interest in any of that. He wants to get down to, you know, you know, what's real. And he's, and he's sending a message to, to the the child, Lewis, you're not smart as you, as smart as you think you are. You're not as, uh, socially adept as you think you are. I'm going to break you down. (laughs) You're going to learn how to think. You're going to learn how to talk and we're not going to put up with any nonsense.
1: Uh, uh, Just a quick thing. I, found pretty fascinating in the film that I think is matched from my reading of Lewis. And this is the fact that for Lewis, the discovery of God um, and, and the coming to know God is is over a lot of steps, almost like solving a mystery. And and he discovers this book and he hears this idea. And, and all these little signs are pointing in this direction that he doesn't really come aware of until he finds himself actually having been pursued by God and then brought into to grace. But it reminds me a lot of St. Augustine, a similar process of intellectual wrestling with these things and these different signs like the children singing, open the book, open the book and read, become revelatory for him. And I really, really saw that kind of uh, similarity going on, especially
2: pronounced in this film. Well, and part of it, too, is that his atheism was driven by the problem of evil. And in fact, that's what the thing that kept Augustine yeah. from, from his mother's Christianity. It was the problem of evil. So, yeah. but, but with Lewis, there's some really interesting additional points, the idea of, of myth and things like that, that, I, that are uh, I, uh, very appealing to me. Um, And I have to confess, the first time I read uh, "Surprised by Joy," I just felt like, man, I would have thrived in that with that kind of education. I would have (laughs) loved that. Yeah. But yeah, uh, wrong, wrong decade, wrong country. (laughs) Right, right.
0: Now, now, concerning this project that Max and his company have. It's really intriguing to to consider uh, its appeal, its ability to connect with people, even, you know, here going on 60 years after Lewis's death. And Lewis still speaks. In fact, his critics have been forgotten, largely. Um, and by the way, Lewis was not a uh, a guy who Played the winsome card, or tried the winsome technique. There, there are different stories uh, that convey just how ruthless he could be—not just on hmm. the debate floor, but actually interpersonally with other. Uh, World class intellectuals. So Lewis was intimidated by no one. <laughs> you know, he would dress down people. You know, you know, in in just different settings. And it's it's kind of hilarious to see the biting comments that he would you would yeah. you know uh, employ to send a message uh, to these other people. <laughs> uh, so I, I
2: remember I remember reading one story. I think it was with Walter Hooper, uh, but an American in any event, who was visiting Lewis. And uh, he asked Lewis um, um, uh, if uh, he could use his bathroom. And that's not a phrase that you use in England. So Lewis said, of course. And he took him to the room where there was a bath but no toilet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, he, gave him, he gave him a towel and said, basically, have at it. Right. And, uh, and then the guy was looking. Sheepish, and Lewis just burst out laughing and said, you want the toilet. Enough of these American <laughs> euphemisms. <laughs> I,
0: I, I came across I came across an anecdote with AI Richards, the literary critic, the English literary critic that. Uh, uh, intellectually, Lewis despised. But, anyways, uh, Lewis was actually charged with making sure that uh, he was taken care of when he lectured at Oxford. He was there as a visiting, and so he was in charge of actually setting up sort of the accommodations for this guy. And uh, <laughs> uh, so he gets him into some rooms, I think, at Magdalen College. And and Lewis realizes that, that he has nothing to read before he goes to bed. So he goes back to his own study and uh, tr- retrieves the his own copy of one of Richard's books. And that oh, no. <laughs> he walks in and he says, here's something that will put you to sleep.
1: <laughs> and he hands it to him. And then not,
0: not only is, is, does he hand him his own book, but in the marginalia, there are all of Lewis Lewis's caustic comments about the stupidity of the arguments.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I was thinking about the marginal <laughs> comments that that yeah. must have been in there.
0: Yeah. And and yeah. What, now here, you know, the, giving credit to Richard, give you know, give credit to Richards. He actually signed the book, and handed <laughs> it back to Lewis. <laughs> and in his and in his that's uh, good. And in his response, you know, underneath his signature, he says something to the effect: "I wish I had heard these criticisms earlier. But it would, it, would it would have been a better book." <laughs> 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 but, but that's the kind of guy we're talking about here. And and uh, so, you know, but that's another thing to kind of keep in, you know, keep in mind is when you get into. Um, the world of uh, academia, and, and, and when you're talking about the intelligentsia, there is just no tolerance or patience for niceties. Get to the point, you know. Do you agree? Yeah. Don't you agree? Why? You know, and, yeah. and you know that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And,
2: and and the really good academics, and there are some out there. Uh, the good ones, if you if you take them on, will be more than happy to listen and and interact with you. And actually, in my experience, they'll they'll sort of be, befriend you as a mind as a younger scholar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If, you, if, if, you, if you've if you got the chutzpah to do that.
0: Or at least respect you if the questions <clears throat> and the challenge are good. Right,
1: yeah. Yeah, and I remember during my, my time of uh, doctoral work in Oxford that there was still something of that, you, you sort of, you go in and rip each other to threat, you know, to shreds. <laughs> Um, but then you go to the pub afterwards. I mean, it was sort of, you know, you kind of, and then you oftentimes would continue the conversation and, and, and you know, yeah, there were egos and people could have schools of thought where they didn't want to have much to do with the others. But on the whole, you you had to see each other every week um, in seminars. So you, you had to learn both how to be vigorous, but also um, be friends with each other. Um, I don't know if that's there anymore. Um, I, I'd like to hope it is. Uh, I think a lot of universities here, it's all just become don't hurt my feelings or say anything that's politically incorrect because I can't handle having to argue for it because it's a social construct and not an intelligible, you know, line of reasoning.
2: Yeah, in, in my doctoral work, the seminars uh, consisted of you know, starting off with a single book that you would be reading is sort of to set the stage for things, but then each person would develop a research paper and you had to present your research paper. And you distributed it a week ahead of time and everybody then had a chance to go through it and <laughs> shred it. <Yeah. laughs> and so when you got together, when you got together the next week, you it was it was open season on your paper. <laughs> and you learn very, very quickly not to make mistakes. You learn very quickly to be careful in your arguments and to document everything thoroughly. And you also develop a thick hide. Yeah, yeah. well, that all <laughs> of which is essential for an academic.
0: Yeah, or just a, a, a you know a person who is able to reason well and argue for whatever you know rhetoric uh, was. Considered a you know remarkably important uh, discipline, not just because you want to go out into advertising, but because you wanted to be able to argue for the the good, politically speaking, mm-hmm. in forums uh, in which there is a deliberation concerning what should our community do in light of this or that. So the idea was you you know you need to know how to to you know think logically, then you need to know how to persuade. But the, but the point was just, it wasn't just to personally get ahead. The point was to actually help the political community, uh, work through just the challenges of, you know, that come along when, you know, any community is trying to live together or deal with the challenges that it faces, uh, from external forces. And, and this tendency that we have now to just take it easy on each other and care more about our feelings than whether or not the arguments are sound or the truth of the matter, I think, reflects the fact that we we're not in touch with reality. We're not actually no. dealing with what's in the best interest of us all. You know, um, what we're dealing with is just personal little worlds and, and you know, the subjective uh, sense that each person has of their own well-being rather than thinking about anything bigger than that. Anyway, that's kind of gotten us off a track a little bit. But getting back to Lewis, uh, Lewis didn't have yeah. any really trouble with any of that.
2: Um, getting getting off the track is part of our mo. That's right. That's right. Now, so. now
0: getting back getting back to uh, Max and uh, what you know he's up to, you know, there are. You know, shows that I, you know, I've never actually been to one of the productions, but I've been aware of the productions. I know that, you know, he's got a presence there in in, in New York and in Manhattan, you know, so there's, you know, that and that's great. And, uh, you know, the richness of the material that he's working with is great. Uh, you know, kind of the question that a lot of folks struggle with is um, why can't we produce more people like Lewis um, why don't we see more, more, you know, sort of world-class intellects and so forth. Um, maybe that's unfair. You know, Lewis is a freak in a certain way and a gift in another, you know, uh, person who in his own time was considered one of the greatest intellectuals in like just the academy, N- you know, not, not, uh, apologize. That was his sideline. <laughs> that, was, that was sort, of, sort yeah. of what he did with his spare time, you know,
1: that's his hobby. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. So maybe that's worth re- reflecting on, you know, is his education and the pedagogy that was in practice in the world that he came into adulthood in something that we need to recover? You know, we talk a lot about classical education and the, its value, and that's that's certainly worthwhile. But what about this, this um, press for um, not just meeting standards, because that's not really what it was about. It wasn't really about getting A's and getting a 4.0 and getting into the best school. You know, that's not what they, they were really concerned with. They were concerned with the perfection of uh, the potential of a, of a student. And that's kind of behind the whole Oxford tutorial. So like when, you know, the weird thing here in America is we, we measure universities by how big they are. So if you're a state school and you have 60,000 students, you know, people think that's significant, whereas, or you know, where you, you're in a lecture hall and there are 300 students and you're lecturing to them. But the not, the Oxford tutorial, it's one-on-one. You know, there yeah. is no place to hide. That's <laughs> right. You're sitting right, in that, you're sitting right in front of C.S. Lewis, and he is cross-examining you.
1: And every they go week. over your arguments and work, and they they. Force you to have to give an account for everything you say and why you say it, and they point out every grammatical mistake as well. <laughs> That's right.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, what about that? Is, you know, is this something we should be thinking about? Um, now I, I mentioned, I think, a couple of weeks ago, Montaigne, or Montaigne, it depends on how you want to say it, but in his essays, um, and he, he argues that a tutor. A one-on-one tutor, so the great knock, is absolutely essential because a father or a mother will be too sympathetic to the child.
2: Yeah, and that's, that's an old idea. It goes back to the Middle Ages. That goes back to the practice of fostering that we talked about in a previous episode on manners. But this
0: definitely had a... You know... Uh, Lewis didn't think about The Great Knock uh, and say, man, I hated that guy. He had a real affection for him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, some of The Great Knock appears in some of the stories, like, uh, yeah. you know, that hideous strength. Uh, it, one of the characters is based on The Great Knock.
2: McPherson. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, one of the things that I think is really useful about well, th- there are a couple of things that that have occurred with education. First of all, it's become highly specialized. You know, you're you're you, you know, you can get a degree. Actually, when I was at Michigan State decades ago, um, you you could get a degree in packaging science <laughs> about building <laughs> building boxes for moving stuff. Right,
0: right.
2: And I know people who who do this for a living and it is, you know, it requires a lot of technical knowledge. But <laughs> is that what is that what the university is for? Um, yeah, I, the, you know, the, the two things that Lewis had that we don't are first of all this rigorous intellectual approach where you are challenged to defend everything that you are saying. Number 1, and number two, the broad base of of reading that he did, the study, uh, these kinds of things, you know, working, you know, started with Homer. Mm. Um, you know, I, then then I had to I had to do Cicero and Demosthenes, the two great boars. Then but <laughs> then, Aeschylus, Euripides, you know, and. Uh, but, He's but, but, learning but, Greek and Latin during the day, and French, Italian, and German in the evening. Nice. But
0: you're getting at something that I think many many people in uh, you know our list, our listening audience wouldn't be aware of, and that's the effect of the PhD, and uh, how we can contrast that with the master's degree. So a lot of folks they consider the master's degree just kind of the stepping stone to the PhD. That's a recent phenomenon. Uh, By the way, just so folks know, out in podcast land, C.S. Lewis did not have a PhD. Now, he got honorary doctorates afterwards, but he never had a, you know, he was teaching at Oxford. He was a master, but he didn't have the PhD. The PhD is a narrowing of focus. Mm -hmm. So you become the world's authority on some absurd little data point. I actually knew a guy who was the world's authority on whether black letters on white background are more uh, effective than white letters on black background or whatever, you know, that, that was basically black letters on white versus white letters on black. He was the world authority on that. That was his yeah. PhD.
2: Yeah. There's uh, there's an old saying that the process of education consists of learning more and more about less and less until you know, absolutely everything about absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but,
0: you know, think about think about some of these other uh, people that we have remarkable regard for. I mean, Tolkien didn't have a PhD. Um, Niebuhr didn't have a PhD. Uh, many of the great and mo- you know, Karl many Barth. of the most influential intellectuals prior to say, yeah, Carl Bart, prior to nineteen say seventy, uh, they they demonstrated their worth by what they what they wrote. Uh, and the mastery that they demonstrated of the of an entire sort of body of knowledge—that's what the master's degree is intended to, con, you know, sort of, sort of prepare you to work with—is this entire discipline. So you have a master's degree in English. So that doesn't mean maybe uh, just off the top of your head you you can say everything that could be said about say Milton, but you have the wherewithal to be able to go to do the deep dive anytime you want because you you know the major players, you know the, the 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 major movements and then you can you can work with it. Um mm-hmm. I'm an I'm, I'm I I think that uh now both of you guys have PhDs. <laughs> you know, I uh I was pursuing it and then just forfeited it. I just walked away. But um you know, I think you guys though agree with me that it, that's this sort of uh ability to Kind of work with a, a wide range of things is something we see fewer and fewer people being being able to
2: do. Yeah, you know, it, it's sort of interesting. When I did my doctorate at the University of Wisconsin, we had a thing that they called prelims, and in prelims, it was a nine-hour essay exam you got four pieces of paper, each of which had five questions, and you had to answer three. And they are on four different fields of history. In my case, early, central, and late Middle Ages and Renaissance Reformation. They could ask you anything about that field that they wanted to. And any question is fair game. And the net result is you had to... You know, in my case, I had 1,100 years of history, more or less, 1,200 maybe, in Europe that they could have asked me anything they wanted to about, period. No holds barred. And the net effect of this is my generation of people coming out of that program had a broad base of knowledge within history in in our four fields. They've since dropped prelims. They don't do it anymore. Wow.
1: Yeah and
2: and, yeah. and now with another
0: the, with, the, with the prelims though glenn was with the prelims glenn was it uh written
2: oral both essay exam you okay. come in at eight in the morning you're done at five in the afternoon
1: yeah and I, I mean i think you have a lot of different things going on as well i think a lot of the uh education in their generation um received a, a much fuller and more um intense bachelor's program, if you will, or the equivalent. And so what you end up having is a certain readiness. Now, the U.S., for example, for a long time hasn't had a bachelor's degree you can do in divinity or theology. So you have to do a MDiv, which only introduces you to some classes. Then, in my case, I went on and did a THM to kind of uh, intensify that. And because theology is so big, really, getting a doctorate was just a stepping stone into being able to become conversant in a bit of a wider and yet specialized area. And, and for example, there was a lot of stuff that hadn't been translated into English, and so you had to do a lot of the languages and the prep work, and then you, then you could finally write on it, and it would actually bring new scholarship to the field. But the... I think the education was very different. They would have been able to do this much earlier because their 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 preparatory schools and their first degree would have covered what it takes much longer to do in you know the time you know in the programs when I went into them.
2: You know, I I, I spoke to somebody from Britain. He was a professor at uh, University of Leicester, and what we concluded is that. European education is front-loaded. American education is back-loaded. So an American PhD is as good as a European PhD, and arguably, in some cases, better. There, there are all kinds of variables here, but a European bachelor's is probably going to be much more, or even a, um, a the the high, the equivalent of the high school diploma is going to be a whole lot more intense than what we get here.
0: Right. Right. Now getting back to Lewis and Max and what, you know, we had, you know, the privilege of talking to Max about, um, we probably should sort of kind of bring kind of this, uh, portion of our time with our audience here to a close and then transition to a question and answer format. But is there anything you wanted to say as we wrap up Glenn, particularly related to Max and what he's doing with, uh, you know the, the most reluctant convert but maybe more broadly
2: yeah um i think that max is a what he's doing with the fellowship of performing arts you know all of the shows whether it's plays or theater is a great example of something lewis said he said we don't need more christian writers we need more good writers who are christian in other words we just need people Doing things from a uh, a Christian worldview, but producing excellence, producing quality in, in in writing. When you look at most Christian films, they're schlock, and that's the polite word here. Sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> the the most reluctant convert is an excellent film. It is you know it it just. it it is just extraordinarily well done on every level. The plays are extraordinarily well done. And so what you're getting here is quality performing arts on stage and on film that promote a biblical worldview, but do it in a way that exudes excellence and that I think even secular critics would look at these things and say that was really well done and it's got a lot of interesting ideas. Right. Uh, I think that we, you know, by producing a lot of bad Christian films, Christian films that at best are thinly disguised versions of the four spiritual laws, uh, (laughs) or that, uh, only appeal to, to, um, you know, sort of in-house things, preaching to the choir, I think we're doing ourselves a real injustice. Um, the artistic quality of these things speak for themselves and I think will do much better at reaching a larger audience, um, you know, even if you're just thinking about it in terms of of bringing people to to consider the claims of Christ. this is, This will work a lot better than any other Christian films I've seen. So I am, uh, yeah, I think that this is just really important stuff that's sort of the bottom line because of what it is doing and how well it is doing it.
0: Yeah, I agree with you completely, Glenn. But let me just uh, note that sometimes uh, there are people who take that observation that some of the work that's been produced and, uh, you know, Christian storytelling, whether it's through novels or films, is kind of schlocky. To uh, uh, justify, they've used that argument to justify maybe things that are edgy in ways that a person like C.S. Lewis would not have been pleased to see. So in other words, they say, well, well, this is is unrealistic over here, so we're going to get really graphic and ugly. But when we think about what Lewis produced, what Tolkien produced, it's wholesome, uh, it's uplifting, it's beautiful uh it deals with realities that are uh, uh, unpleasant but not in a way that is gratuitous not in a way that uh, just titillizes or sort of appeals to it, sort of a need to be gritty or something like that there's there's a, there's always a reason um so it's it's sort of like this you know so, so every, every, like when you think about comedians uh a lot of comedians basically with their edginess uh, get nervous laughter, and then they work with that. really good comedians don't need the the edgy nervous laughter; they just say funny things and and they can be very wholesome uh, in terms of how they approach their craft of making people laugh and what's harder? Uh, I think it's harder to be clean and funny than it is to be edgy and you know sort of graphic and and supposedly funny um, you, you appeal to a wider audience, but also there's a kind of, uh, I think an intelligence and a subtlety that's, uh, at work in the person who's appealing to a larger audience. Uh, in other words, it's, it's kind of a cheap trick to, to do the, you know, the low road. Uh, and so, it's not just that we want to be real in the sense that we want to show blood or we want to show, you know, you know, whatever. What we want is really artful and thoughtful presentations that deal with, uh, you know, what's true and good and beautiful as we've talked about many
2: times. Yeah. Right. And all of the things that fellowship of performing arts do are built around ideas.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: They're not built around the kind of edgy or gratuitous stuff. They're built around ideas and that's part of the quality.
0: Right. So anyway, uh, as we wrap up, Tom, is there anything you want to say as we conclude this portion of our time?
1: No, it was, uh, it was a great film to watch. I I kind of uh, agree with, you know, everything Glenn just said there. It was great having him uh, come and share a bit with us as well. And I, you know, encourage anyone to, to check it out. It was, uh, it was worth, it's well worth it.
0: Okay. Anything you want to say as we close this portion of things, Uh, Glenn? I think I've already said it. All right. Well, we thank you for listening to the theology podcast. We appreciate your support. People support us in lots of ways. Sometimes people share, uh, you know, their enthusiasm with for the show with people they know, and that leads to more people listening to the show, and that's great. Sometimes people rate the show, and uh, that helps as well for lots of reasons. They give us, you know, f- five stars or whatever. And, that, and, and and then there are even people who, who manage uh, to give us money on a monthly basis in, in different ways. You know, there's the Fight Laugh Feast Network. We appreciate that. There are other ways that people uh, support us financially. And, and, and those gifts really do make a difference because they actually do pay the bills. There are bills and bills in the show. But anyway, that's enough for now. Uh, we uh, are grateful, as I said, and we look forward to seeing you or at least... Uh having you hear us <laughs> next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.